G'day and welcome to the 17X podcast series. My name is Mick Hayes. Thanks for tuning in. I have the absolute pleasure of chatting with entrepreneurs, visionaries, and absolute change makers on how they're using their business as a force for good in the world. We align these conversations with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the UN's global goals for the 2030 agenda that we simply must achieve. And it's my firm belief that our business community is our best shot of success. If you're inspired by these conversations, you'll absolutely love our 17X speaking events that tour Australian cities. Jump over to our website, 17sdg.com, that's 17 the word, to find out when our events are coming to a city near you. But for now, sit back and enjoy the show, and don't forget to subscribe where you are listening to stay up to date with our future episodes. G'day and welcome back to the 17X podcast. My name's Mick. Thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to 2021. Should be an exciting year and no doubt a huge amount of lessons for us to take away from a a very interesting 2020. I'm excited with this first guest for the year to kick off with. It's a conversation with an out-and-out performer in the social enterprise and and impact-driven business community. Liz Dinyang joins us from Brisbane. Now, Liz has a background in product management, design, international development, law, and community building. Sharing her focus between business and social enterprise, Liz is the founder of research and advocacy project Nowhere and Everywhere, along with children's platform Squoodle, which is set up for engaging and educating kids in environmental and social justice issues. Liz has a wealth of experience across a number of outcomes that are relevant to the SDGs and is directly impacting a huge amount of them. I welcome you to the show and I really hope you enjoy this chat. Thanks for joining me. Okay, welcome Lise to the show. Good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Um, so I always like to um, to kick off with a bit of an icebreaker before we get into it. <laughs> uh, 2020 has certainly been a a strange year for many of us, uh, but I think there's some lights in amongst it all. So I'd love to hear, you know, what's been the highlight for you this year so far? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think there's been a lot of bad news around pipelines, but there's actually been some good news around pipelines this year too. So um, a federal judge um, in America ruled that the Dakota Access Pipeline had to shut down pending an environment review. Um, and the Supreme Court even blocked a permit for the US side of the Keystone Pipeline. So both of those have got lots of legal issues coming up, but at least they were delayed this year at best. So that's some good good pipeline news this year. <laughs> wow, pipeline news, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Think straight into a difficult topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, way to rock the boat straight away. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so uh, you're coming to us from Brisbane, yeah? Yes, yeah. Just up the road for me, that's cool. Um, so... Uh, what I'd love to do before we get into hearing a bit more about what Nowhere and Everywhere is all about and some of the other stuff that you're up to, can you give us yeah. a, uh, I guess, a three to five minute snapshot as to your origin story around your career? Like what, where have you been and what brought you through to what you're doing right now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just, just like um, yeah. a five minute version. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Probably even quicker than that. Um, so I don't really have a straight line trajectory at all, but I, you know, like anyone, I worked in the corporate world for a while and, and went to university and studied. Um, and I travelled a lot. So I'm originally from the Netherlands. Um, I've travelled the world pretty ex- extensively, um, camped throughout Africa. And that's really when I had a first environmental um, uh, moment when I went gorilla trekking in Uganda and Rwanda. Um, and just looked at the eyes of wild gorillas and thought, oh, wow, we're, we're really messing this up in the world. 
Um, so that was in 2009. And from there, I left the corporate world in 2012 and moved to rural Cambodia um, to be a country manager for a not-for-profit in childhood education and did a lot on um, school building projects there and getting involved in gender equity. Um, and then kept doing that kind of work and just never went back to the corporate world and started a business in design and then slowly started bringing design um, experience into environmental work and the work we were doing in education. And then about five years ago, really switched fully into the environmental side when I just saw what was happening around me. Um, a lot of my travels, things had changed. Countries had changed, landscapes had changed. Animals that I had taken photos of, I love photography, had gone extinct. Um, so I just realized, wow, this is, this is collapsing in front of my eyes and literally through my lens. So it's time to do something else about it. So that's how I moved into this and tried to combine all of those different fields together. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, uh, I like that you had a couple of aha moments there. You know, we often ask yeah. people, you know, what was your, did you have an aha moment? Or was it something that gradually built in you over time? Yeah. Um, what, I guess, inside of all of that, that story, what, um, uh, where do you get your confidence to go, all right, I'm shifting out of corporate success and I'm going to take on some of these major challenges in the world is, you know, um, that's because it's a big leap, right? <laughs> it's a leap. <laughs> I, look, I don't really know. I had amazing parents, so that really helped. Um, I have an incredible mum. And so she was really envi into environmental action. Um, even when the Club of Rome report was released in seven years, she was already an activist. So I was very lucky to have that. Um, entrepreneurially, we're not, we don't really have that in the family on either side, but I just didn't see another way. I just, my rule in life, probably since the age of 14 has always just to be jam pack your life in as much as possible. Cause you only get to live once and then you die. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just prefer to go and do it and see how it lands. And I think a lot of the, the confidence comes from, I've done it before it's crashed and burned, but you still get up and do something else. And th that's a lot of privilege as well, obviously in where I've been born and, and the family I have, but mm. it's also just, you know, I've gone and done it from $0 five times before I've gone and moved across the world. I've gone and traveled with no money. I've hitched hiked, you know, there is always possibilities. Um, so, yeah. I love that that's kind of a, uh, inside that there's a bit of a key learning there, particularly for any of the, uh, I guess, young generation listening that the power of travel, right? And what yeah. you open your eyes up to. Um, yeah. You know, I, I know for my children, I'm going you know, to encourage them to go and travel before they start to try and make any, major career decisions and go and see yes. the world and, yes yeah and feel it out for themselves yeah and spend some time in the real world away from I mean I know cities are real world but it's not really a representation of the world we used to have and it's very modern of the last 60 years so yeah. like actually spend some time in where life happens and how we did live and how we can contribute instead of just take all the time yeah and so home for you is in the, ne the Netherlands yeah uh, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you're, you're from yeah. the Netherlands originally, yeah? I'm from the Netherlands. The yeah. Dutch is my first language. I've probably spent most of my adult life living in rural Cambodia and Brisbane. So um, home is a fluid concept currently. Wherever my earrings lay, I say. <laughs> yeah, nice but at least that Dutch heritage. I mean, you know, the Netherlands has had a pretty good reputation for sustainable energy and kind of getting ahead of yeah. the curve on some of this stuff, yeah? Yeah, definitely lucky in Europe because the EU is definitely ahead on some things. I mean, we still have a long way to go in the Netherlands too. And we've obviously got a massive issue with sea level because we're under yep. sea level. Yep. Um, and traditionally, obviously, being a, a coloniser nation has not left a good legacy across the world. So um, a lot to work on in that respect. Um, yeah, some things we're definitely really ahead on um, as a response. So um, donor economics, for example, is being implemented in Amsterdam. 
that started really committee started for that late last year but in response to the pandemic it's been increased in timeline and it's, and it's starting mm -hmm. so in those kind of things we're definitely far ahead and obviously um bike riding and the fact that we're a much smaller nation and things are just they are just more sustainable because of size as well yeah yeah sure and in all of that travel you know coming from from you know i, I guess a first world kind of environment of, of uh in in europe and then coming through places like africa and cambodia and I love the fact that you went looking at eye to eye with gorillas. <laughs> so cool. um, what, are, what are some key takeaways that we can learn from? Like, do you have any key, real key learnings? Uh, oh, I think that's a, there? yeah, that's an awesome question. So we'll just pick you up on a language thing first, just because it's a, such a bugbear of mine having worked in international development. So instead of first world countries, we try and use industrialized nations or high income nations these days. Right. And then for um, other countries, we try and use, instead of using developing, which really creates in us and them, we either use global south and global north. I find that geographically difficult in Australia because everyone assumes they're in the global south then. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we try and use, you know, non-industrialized or low or middle income countries. Um, so yes, with that, but I've yeah, got to learn some amazing things. So I lived in Nairobi for a while and in 2010 and Nairobi really opened my eyes to the fact that um, other countries use what we would consider waste far more effectively. Mm. So I had a real, um, one of those aha moments, I suppose, when I was living in a very low income area and someone came past to pick up, collect my rubbish. And I talked to them, um, I'd learned a little bit of Swahili at the time and kind of tried to understand what they were doing. And they were going through the rubbish collection first to pull out the valuable pieces of it. Then it was going to the next person in a chain to pull the, um, you know, the recyclable pieces from it. Then it was going to the next person chain for th those pieces before it ever went to landfill. And obviously there's a lot in there about government services and what we should do public policy wise and exploitation of labor. But the fact that the waste was actually being used made me realize, holy crap, we're just not doing this in um, <laughs> industrialized cities very well at all. Yeah. So that was a big learning. Um, and my other big thing from lots of travel, lots of spending time in different countries is just the community element. So there's a lot of people who live in a community who see it as their responsibility to contribute back to that community and to be part of a community, to not be so isolated from it, to not be making decisions that just impact themselves and their own biological children, but to think about how does this impact our community? How does this impact other children? How does this impact our you know, our um, ability to sustain ourselves going forward in the next generation. And I think that's really missing from a lot of what we do. Mm. Yeah, sure. And um, I guess that's a nice little segue to bring us through to what you're doing now. So uh, nowhere and everywhere. Tell yep. us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that started about two years ago, just as a as an outlet to start um, creating some education and awareness. And I'm still not convinced that education awareness is going to change all that much necessarily but I do believe that once you become aware of something and then you choose to take action on it then you, we can create some real leverage um, so it, it started with that in mind so we do a lot of work in Cambodia um, in rural Cambodia where I work um, so we have a little center there that's kind of become our hub and we'd like to create more jobs there in, in working with the environment and environment champions and local people that are going around and explaining climate change, for example, explaining biodiversity loss. Um, one of the things we've got a massive issue with in Cambodia is agriculture at the moment. So last year, our region only had a 40% harvest compared to usual because of droughts and a whole lot of issues with hydro dams. So how can we create experimental product projects and really use, you know, design thinking principles um, and, and testing principles, but also local knowledge on the ground to say, let's experiment with these crops. Let's see what's, you know, um, helps with, with drought stress and heat stress. So that's a lot of the work there. And then, and then more broadly, more globally outside of that, it's a lot of 
okay, we've educated an audience now, we've grown an audience to um, a substantial figure and, and taken them along with that journey and we're so grateful for that. So what are the next steps from there? How can we move from an education piece to a these are the things in the system that need to change and this is how we can change them? Yeah, sure. It's a, um, I guess that that would be that, that kind of step in the workflow is the education and then where, where do you empower? Is it an empowerment model to get people to take action or do they run through know your workshops to actually yeah go and do it (laughs) yeah locally in Cambodia we do workshops um and then try and um will pay for local people there to become trained up environmental champions for them to take it into their own communities and start that way um outside of Cambodia and globally we're still working on what that next step is so um one of our big things is obviously understanding where in the system we can create the most leverage and where is the most important so we try and take a real systems thinking approach and obviously little individual actions are important but you know not using a straw one day doesn't account for the fact that you live in a massive house in a in a neighborhood that's been cleared of land and you're eating meat every single day um, and you're voting for you know a party that doesn't um, create climate action or, or stem biodiversity loss so we're trying to really put those in context all the time of this is a decision but actually in context it means this so here's the part where we really need to act and we've only got a certain amount of hours in the in the week and, and money um, that's available to us so here is where we should be putting it yeah sure and so um, looking at I guess the vision for this this model yeah, uh, I guess what's the end game? Like, what it, what what would be the I guess the pillars of of change, or what are you playing for? Yeah, that's a really good question too. Something that we're talking about strategically all the time at the moment. So I think um, we have a few key um, primary areas that we really want to play in, um, and that we're focusing on. And one of those is helping to change the economic system. So. We really need, we obviously believe that we need top-down um, action and we need significant amount of that. But in order to get a lot of that, we need bottom-up pressure. So we really need to create ground soils of people who do understand what does an economic system beyond capitalism look like? What what can we imagine? What can we create beyond that? How can we be part of that in order to create that those top-down legislative effects then and those changes? Um, and the same goes for things like our working lives. So our working lives are pretty problematic at the moment um, that we work you know, five or six days a week for an enormous amount of hours. We don't have any time to cook nutritiously or grow our own food or volunteer to organisations. And obviously our work is often destroying the environment um, and and other people, other people's lives. So how can we change the system that we work in and and how do we get there? So again, we need that groundswell of understanding for this is a vision for the future. This is what we can have. Um, and, ha- and now you need to do take specific actions. So you need to vote. You need to, um, you know, call your centers, those kind of things. Kind of the power <laughs> of the people and the, and the voice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Pushing, pushing from that way. Yeah. Because it's just not happening in so many places from the top. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and what do you see from your experience across both internationally and, you know, just even through your life journey? What are the opportunities that we in Australia can, can learn from what you're seeing and actually start voicing some of that you know bottom up oh yeah that's a really good question so i think france has a really interesting model um i've just forgotten the name of it but in terms of their community participation so they for example this year they pulled together it was 149 150 people um and then got an idea from each of those people to present to macon the president and the legislative assembly there on climate action and what they can do um and i think 146 of those 149 measures were implemented so i think there's a real opportunity for australia and countries like it to consider that there needs to be far more consultation and design with communities and 
um, asking what do you think and getting your input. Um, So I think there's a real opportunity in that space. Um, Australia is really difficult um, as a, you know, a nation that obviously relies on mining quite heavily um, and nearly entirely in some places um, that relies on enormously big houses that are filled with things. So there needs to be a real um, piece in Australia that talks about not just a just transition, which we obviously need, but doesn't land that well um, politically with many regions. But what, what can this look like? So if we don't have massive houses everywhere and coal mines everywhere, what is, what is the alternative here? And actually sit down with communities and design that out. Um, and then not just design it out, actually put together policy proposals that are legitimate and practical of how do we get from here to there because it's going to be a journey yeah. and we're not taking people along that way at the moment. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. You know, stop buying so much shit, everybody. I <laughs> know, <laughs> stop filling your houses with crap. I know. And it's, yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you get in this argument of, okay, Australia has, you know, some of the biggest houses in the world, usually number one spot with America. Does it have that because, you know, us humans were demanding that we have massive houses yeah. or does it have that because developers were saying, well, we can clear this massive amount of land, flatten it and put the same houses everywhere. Sure. Um, and it's, you know, it's both approaches, obviously. So we need to, tackle both ends yeah. of that i love like i kind of always come back I, I have this thing in my brain that circles back to um if you do you remember the movie fight club yes <laughs> and whenever i hear you know the conversation around you know starting to minimalize um what yeah. we actually have in our space you know our stuff yeah I, I i always circle back to one of the speeches in there towards the end where he's talking about you know basically offload all your crap <laughs> and yes. you, know, you, you are you are not your job you are not your computer yeah. you are not the things that you own kind of thing yeah it's like man did we there's almost like a sustainable version of that going on now <laughs> there's a sustainable fight club <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you must talk about it you know you have to talk about it everywhere yeah um, I see on your on your website for um for nowhere and everywhere you've got a, a tab there and some some attention to circular economy and I'm seeing that yes. kind of come up quite a lot in um particularly in Brisbane yeah there seems to be a really healthy uh, and and uh, uh, energetic um, community of of companies individuals and, yeah. and and not-for-profits looking into this this idea of a circular economy and how do we create that. Do you, yeah. do you see that as a, as a major opportunity for, because a lot of the people that we, we, uh, that listen to this podcast are business owners yeah. um, and looking at how can we create, you know, a profitable business, fair enough, but yeah. one that, that can actually positively impact the, yeah. the, the community and or the planet. Um, yeah. And I see that where I'm getting to the circular economy model seems to be a good option. Yes. So I think it's one option of a few that we need to implement. I think there's a few questions in there. So um, one of the things we're not talking about, and as a business owner myself, is actually changing business models um, entirely. So the circular economy does help to do that. But within a system of capitalism, we are still stuck inside of this. You must make a profit. And in order to make a profit, you must grow. And in order to do that, you actually have to destroy the environment or resources or people. Um, so that, that's still problematic. But the circular economy itself, I think, massive opportunity in that. And it, it is, you know, the responsibility of business owners to implement that um, and it is then responsibility of governments to encourage that and incentivize it as well um, there's so many exciting things happening with that at the moment there are I always feel like the detractors slightly there are a couple of things I think we need to keep in mind so I've seen a few projects come up recently that 
I, I guess technically could count as circular economy projects, but they're creating products that the market doesn't really need that yeah. ends up creating extra waste that ends up back in recycling. Like it just, we need yeah. to think about the overall life cycle impact of something and the actual choices that we're making. Um, and I think we can do a bit of a better of a job on the fact that circular economy really always existed. The Indigenous peoples have always had it um, mm. to contribute back to the environment. And I think we can um, work with that knowledge better and acknowledge that that was always happening um, before we came along. Yeah, sure. And I, I like, like I, I think it's quite fair and valid to, to, you know, to look at ways to improve the circular economies that are around, you know, there's nothing yes. wrong with going, okay, look, we're doing a pretty good job, but Hey, yeah. where do we find the 1% opportunities to do it better? So. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. been really fascinating because I don't know if you follow what the circular economy hub um, has been doing, but they've been starting to measure, you know, um, economies around the world. So in countries, so um, Norway was recently measured. Um, the Netherlands have been measured. I think Austria, Switzerland have been measured. And it's just fascinating because we are, we are so low. I think globally we're like, you know, in the high 8% of actually being circular. And then some countries, most countries are far worse than that and a couple are better. But it's just fascinating the, how big that gap is and how much work we really have to do. And within that, there is obviously enormous amounts of opportunity in order to bridge that. Yeah, definitely. And that's 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 been a key, a key point, I guess, out of some of the last actual interviews I've done in this podcast. We're with um, some creative, uh, amazing people that are looking at the, the measurement. So, you know, whilst... The last few years, particularly around the global goals that we're here to talk about, uh, is you know getting a lot of people interested and companies and aware and engaged with the idea of the KPIs and, and getting towards these goals. But what is the impact measurement that perhaps hasn't been thought about yet? <laughs> and that seems to be that natural progression of the next step. And now people are starting to look at well, what are the metrics that we're actually measuring here, and uh, and what is the tangible you know the tangible impact that we're creating, and how do we measure that? And I love the fact that it's starting to that's the progression and that's the next step. And that's no different to business, right? You, you have your idea, yeah. you implement it, and then yeah. eventually you've got to measure it. So Yeah, oh, I love that you raise that. So I work in impact measurement a lot, obviously having done a lot with not-for-profits. I just love yeah. that you raise that. And I think something that businesses can really keep in mind, I saw a quite a, a choice example this year at some point, was what incentives are you putting in place as a business? So yeah. for example, I know that a lot of businesses have a KPI of we're going to you know, recycle 30%. And so you get your business units to recycle more and you hit that KPI and you go, great. Or you go to a business unit and say, you know, why aren't you meeting this? Great. But is that actually the right incentive? So if a business unit actually reduced it completely and removed that item out of the, the supply chain or their workflow, whatever they're using it for, they're not going to be able to report on that 30% recycling rate. They're not going to meet it because they've actually done something better than that. So are you, are you setting the right metrics up for, you know, ultimate success that's greater than just a tick in the box? Yeah, I think that's where your opportunity around applying some design thinking to that would really help. Yes. You're looking at, you know, rather than just recycling a bottle, maybe look yeah. at how you can actually get rid of the bloody thing. And then, yes, know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about the paper versions, just get rid of the bottle, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, I, I've, um, you know, raised this a few times around the prevention versus cure kind of mentality, you know. Are yes, we, where are we trying to cure some of these challenges? Whereas maybe if we actually focused our, our energies in the prevention side of things, then the cure doesn't actually need to, you know, need to be there. Yeah. Also, I love that you've raised this again, because I would like to ask culturally. So culturally, for example, in the Netherlands, healthcare is very focused on um, prevention, not cure. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, it seems to be much more on the cure end than it does on the prevention end. And I wonder if that's a cultural thing. Like, are we embedding that kind of mindset just from the beginning and we're not shifting that during adulthood? It, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, for me, it is a generational thing around not so much 
individuals, but for me, it's a generational thing around industry and government. So yeah, I, I, where I sit on that is in the last hundred, maybe two hundred years, the and and I, I say this with a bit of empathy and understanding, right? Is yeah, that in the last couple of hundred years, industry, government have all been built and bred in that capitalist. We need to make money and grow and become more successful and powerful. And that yeah. has been the the yardstick for success. Yeah. And so the QR side of things is, uh, I guess it's a it's an industry in its own, right? Um, you know, there's a lot yeah. of opportunity and profit to be made in curing, uh, you know, curing problems when they come up because you then create, yeah, uh, yeah opportunities to build drugs and the, the, the pharmaceutical side of things and and whatnot. So, but whereas I think now we're starting to see that prevention investment in prevention will outweigh the cost of cure yes. so we're yeah. looking at so the climate change you know argument right now is a very valid one so the you know where people are the idiots of the world are saying it's it costs us we'll lose too much money if we shut down the mines and we we shut down fossil fuels and it costs us too much to research into alternative opportunities well the, the research and the proof in the pudding is that if we don't do anything, the cost will far outweigh that investment, you know, the short-term yeah. loss for the long-term gain. So this is where I think there's some maturity happening in, in industry and government and, and, and us as individuals and business owners and entrepreneurs. And I love that the startup scene is very much more aligned with the sustainable side of, of the coin. Yeah, uh, and I feel that there is a that we're in a transition moment, um, which is what I love about the global goals is that they're an attainable, achievable, very easy to digest yardstick and kind of benchmarking system for people to start to change the way that they operate, uh, and and perhaps there is that maturity flip that eventually, hopefully, we're not too late, we will get yeah. there. Um, yeah, that's really interesting because even um, if I think back way, way you know, ten years ago when I was working in certain areas. Um, drowning comes to mind. So drowning is um, prevention of drowning in, in Southeast Asian countries, for example, is extremely difficult. It was back then to have funded because prevention wasn't seen as this sexy thing to fund, whereas sure. cure was this very sexy thing to fund. So um, maybe we have matured somewhat on that, which which is interesting and, and starting to change that. I also look at, you know, I worked with the Millennium Development Goals before they became the SDGs, and you can see our maturity level has changed, like, significantly since we had the MDGs, the SDGs. So, um, yeah, that's that's actually really great. And I think it's also time in chair, right? So, um, yeah. you know, it's not like we could put a bunch of people from the UN or wherever in a room and say, come up with all the answers now. <laughs> obviously it's going to take 10 or 20 years of tried, tested measure and, and impact measurement and where do yeah. we end up? And then off we go again. So just, yeah, I guess the argument is, is still there around. Let's just hope we're not too late when we actually get some of the big players to actually wake up and, and make it happen. So. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the, isn't it? The world still be here for our kids. kids. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, we asked a question last night on one of our social media and received hundreds and hundreds of responses overnight, but I was having this question, this heated discussion in the business community of what does it actually mean to be ethical and sustainable? And, yeah. you know, as to be able to grow as a business, obviously you're looking at your clients, you, you know, are you taking on ethical and sustainable clients? Well, you have to draw limits somewhere of what ethics and sustainability mean. But if you get investment, for example, you know, there's that whole controversy around the Oatly brand. I don't know if you watched it around, you know, where they're getting their investment money from, but is it even possible to get investment from an ethical and sustainable place because 
really, even if it was a bunch of philanthropists, then they haven't got their money ethically and sustainably. So um, we put this question out there for, can you give us one company in the world that's really big, that's profitable, and that's both doesn't exploit people or resources, the environment. Um, And it's been kind of fascinating to watch those hundreds of answers pour in of what people think, of what we would disagree with, of, you know, what we would classify as ethical, sustainable, you know, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, th- I, I, I think the reality is you're not going to find it right right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, again, it's the maturity of industry and government and, and where the money has come from or where the resources have come from, right? So, the, but the, I think for, for the mindset is that the, we can't sit here and blame what's happened in the past and, yeah. s- and use that as an excuse to say, well, I'm not taking your $100 million because you got that from slave labor, you bastard. Yeah. So screw you, just keep your money. It, it should be, okay, your money came from bad places and bad things. Let's draw a line in the sand and use part of that funding to fix the problems you just created from getting it, great, yeah. and then also use it to prevent them from happening ever again. Yeah. And eventually, maybe 50 years from now, we'll be able to find huge, big ethical companies that have a history, a long history of maintaining that sustainable and ethical impact yeah. Uh, so I, don't, I, I just feel whilst whilst it's understandable that there, there are, you know, huge amounts of resources that have, I guess you'd call them, quote unquote, ill-gotten, whether they've been <laughs> ill-gotten from extremely shitty in circumstances or just kind of slightly dodgy. It's not kind of, you know, a bit of gray yeah. area. There's a big sliding scale there. The reality is that's the pool that we have to fish from. So why don't we just get the ego and the blame game out of the way and go, yeah. okay, let's move forward and fix it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And addre- I guess, yeah, like you say, address some of those systemic issues. You know, we worked with a bias advisor last year who kept reminding us we're not post-colonialism. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, um, you know, addressing some of those issues, like, you know, a lot of it's come from that. So how are we going to address it, that yeah. at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. And it's understandable that, you know, obviously uh, a lot of these areas and, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples where, resources and companies have been completely unethical and there's still a lot of pain associated to that yeah you know if you think of the stolen generation in australia right so yeah that wasn't all that long ago and so there's definitely and quite rightly so there's lots of family and and um cultural members of those communities that are still emotionally affected by that and i'm not saying that we need to just just tell them to get over it yeah uh you know i just feel that there's an opportunity now to start to go look if we don't actually do something soon across the board we're pretty much screwed in the next hundred years so let's just draw a line in the sand and go okay the you know the, the global gdp is x amount regardless of where it came from let's use it now to a repair some of those challenges that happened in the past and then also prevent them from happening you know majority of it needs to be preventing what's going to come in the future and you know certainly that's a big argument because there's a lot of ego there's a lot of (laughs) i see a lot of um what do you call it um uh you're seeing it in the states at the moment a lot um i can't think of the word but um basically it's my right to have my opinion or it's my right to live this way yes Um, yeah well okay yeah it might be your right but is it really the right choice (laughs) so yeah yeah there's a few interesting things in there because i mean the indigenous issue in australia is quite mm. 
um, difficult, obviously, because what's the actual goal here? Is it to try and integrate Indigenous people into a Western philosophy? Um, the goal originally seemed to have been to eradicate Indigenous peoples from Australia. So I think that really needs to be, you know, First Nations led here um, yeah, and an yeah. understanding of, yeah, what actually, what do we want? What And what do Indigenous peoples want? Mm. Um, but also you brought up rights just then. And I think that I'm a bit of an advocate at the moment from trying to move away from the word human. So when we use rights, you know, we often refer to human rights and, you know, I've worked in human rights a long time, but, and we do the same in human centered design, for example. I think we actually need to start removing human from it. You know, it's rights for everyone. It's rights for the animals and the ecosystems yeah, that we live sure. in. Um, and, and I think we've been so focused on humans for such a long time and we've, and we've done a pretty poor job of it <laughs> um, in some ways, actually. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. Well, you know, I've, um, uh, it's, a, yeah, it's an interesting debate, I think, um, and it's one that needs to be had. So uh, yeah. keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Um, <laughs> before we run out of time, can we just uh, have a look at your other project there around Swoodle Kids? Tell us a bit about Swoodle, that. Swoodle, yeah. Um, so that's come about um, because I really think, I think I'm very much like you in this, that we have to engage children um, and we have to do it much better than we have been doing. So that project is really to start working on that. So um, we've actually got a few things that are, are launching this month and next month for that. And that'll start to include education programs and schools after time. Um, but that's also because a personal thing for me is I chose not to have biological children, largely um, from working in human rights and environmentalism. And I think it's I'm far more able to contribute resource to a, a numerous amount of children rather than my own biological child. Um, and obviously in the world, we're quite focused on mothers who have biological children and not the other women involved. So um, I really wanted Scoodle to be very inclusive. So no matter how children show up in your life, it absolutely doesn't not need to be just a biological child. Yep. We all, you know, we all have an inherent interest in children because I think most of us do want to see humanity go on and want to see humans thrive. And so that means we have to invest in our children. We have to get them engaged. So Scoodle is really um, a lot about trying to work out that age group from seven to that teen stage of how can we engage um, these kids the best to to be involved in careers that are really interesting, that aren't just being told you can be an accountant or a lawyer, but, you know, you can be a bee biologist. Yeah, sure. um, and, and we need those kind of people. And also to look at nature differently. So I think one of the ways we're just so disconnected from nature at the moment and we're not interested in it. We're not giving people the time to stare at a leaf cutter ant in Belize, for example, yeah. and watch how it contributes back to, you know, the ecosystem that it's in. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot about that. And I think this would be a, a really cool, I guess, example. Like for anyone listening, it's uh, either has, you know, for them, the jury's out on where the kids should be looking at this stuff yet. Because I, I know my answer to this, but how um, how's the engagement of the kids when you put this stuff in front of them? Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's really, really good. I, I mean, I was so lucky. So my mum was an early childhood behavioural development specialist. So yeah. I was very lucky to have oh, grown good. up with that anyway. Um, but kids want to be engaged with this and kids want to talk about issues. You just have to yeah. change the way, the language we use and the tone we use and, you know, the, the future forward thinking that we're using. Um, but kids, they love it, you know, and when they can be part of something, when they can be part of seeing something magical happen in front of them that nature is doing who who doesn't get entranced by that who doesn't want to watch that it's magic hey like I've yeah. seen, oh. uh you know through some stuff that we've been doing and we're looking at uh well 17x when we when we bring it back to life in a in a uh, post 2020 world yeah uh we'll be doing a 17x youth version because the, the oh. uptake and the engagement around young kids and yeah. you know is whenever i see this stuff put in front of kids it's just it 
amazing and the the energy and the enthusiasm and the creativity and actually the solutions that come out of their mouth you go whoa righto oh this are the solutions amazing i remember being at an event once volunteering for um a kids lean startup thing for environmental solutions and one of the groups had suggested you know they were talking about um poaching of rhinos in the horns and i said why don't we just make like put food cup dye in the horns so that nobody wants to take them um and i just thought isn't this a fantastic idea what a creative solution um yeah i love it I love, and I also love how logical kids are. They're just very, yeah. you know, you explain something to them. Yes, that's how it is. Like, of course, that's how it is. Why are you not doing that? Mm. Um, There's no filter yeah. based on experience. No, no, bias. no, no bias and no jaded, you know, well, these are the hundred year reasons this won't work. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. No, I love it. So um, that's really cool. What we'll do is uh, if you're interested in having a look at these projects, uh, anyone that's listening, um, uh, we'll have the links if you just look down the links are there for the website. So you'll be able to go and have a look at, um, at what's going on with Squoodle and, uh, and Nowhere Everywhere. So that's really cool. Um, my last question for you yes, before I let you go is just uh, definitely around the global goals. Seems I, I do not try to at least um, pay some attention to the SDGs <laughs> in our conversations in some way. So a bit of a segue. Uh, what, um, what do you see as our, our, you know, one, two, three for global goals for business engagement. So a lot of business owners listening to this, trying to work out, okay, how do I actually use these global goal things in my mm-hmm. in my workspace? Um, what would be an easy one, two, three starter pack from your end around that? Um, so I think we actually haven't done this that well um, with the SDGs on engaging businesses and how they should be using them. I think there's a lot more work that can be done there. And again, opportunity, as you say. So yeah. I think if I was a business owner and I'm advising businesses, which um, we do at times, um, I would say, one, just check all your values. So check that your values actually line up to the SDGs. Check that the projects you're working on line up to the SDGs. Awesome. And then take the next step and go, right, here are our targets and here are all of our indicators. And the indicators get a bit more um, measurable. So the indicators will actually give you a way that they're measuring it on a global scale. So I would suggest take that measure and say, how, do, how can I apply this to my company? So if they're doing it, for example, on a population-based, you know, um, a stat per, per 100,000 a capita, okay, can I make that same stat? per the projects or clients we have or the employees we have so there's already a measure there that you can use that you don't have to reinvent the wheel but just applying it in your own context and then there's some fantastic tools so um, the SAG action lab would be a fantastic place to start for businesses to log in and say these are the things we're already doing here's where our gaps are here's the things we need to work on and get someone in who knows what they're talking about so get a mick in you know who knows the SDGs Um, get someone in who knows them who can say okay, this doesn't really make sense at a company level, but here's what that means for, for your business. Here's how you can work on biodiversity loss. Here's um, you know, how you can strengthen your value and missions around it to be able to communicate that to your audience and your clients and then get your clients involved in it. Love it. I love it. So, so the one, two, three there was... Uh, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, I'll just... I'll just um, I'll, so, yeah, uh, I'll put it into... Uh, what I just took from that and yep. I'm taking my own notes here is because yep. uh, we're always learning. So first thing, align your values, get your culture yep. aligned with, with it, make sure everything uh, is in synergy there. Number two is to set some impact measurement around it. Yep. And number three is go and use the resources that are out there. It's all open source, globalgoals.org. Yep. You can get it all there yep. and, um, and use the resources that are in industry right now. Go and find some professionals and get them to come in and take a look at what you're doing and give you some advice. So Yes, absolutely. Um, and then disseminate that, disseminate to all so your clients and your staff and your customers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's it. Don't take no for an answer. Make sure your clients and your supply chain and everyone else yes. is getting on the train. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. A push for transparency. I'm not buying yeah. from you until yeah. you do Yeah, this. exactly. That's exactly what we need to yeah. do. Yeah. That's right.
Well, that's so cool. So th- thank you so much. Um, if people want to do connect with you to, to find out a little bit more, what's the best way? Um, jump on LinkedIn. Um, I'll be around there. So Lee Stingen on LinkedIn or just head to one of our sites, squiddle.com or nowhere and everywhere.co um, and you can use the forms there and, and myself or someone from our little tiny team will get back to you. All right. Awesome. So um, we'll put all those links and contact details uh, underneath this um, podcast link. So just look down and you'll see the LinkedIn file there. Um, but that's it. That's it for now. Thank you so much for your time. And um, we look forward to seeing how you guys unfold over the next little while. And perhaps there's a, there's a, um, a keynote for you at one of our 17X events because I think you'd, oh. you'd be really cool to come and share your story. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for doing all this work too. I know you do a lot in this field, um, not just with this, but with all of your ventures. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Mick Hayes. Be sure to jump onto our website, 17sdg.com to stay up to date with our 17X speaking events that tour Australian cities. We'll be coming back to a city near you sometime in 2021. But for now, make sure you do subscribe wherever you are listening to stay up to date with our future podcast episodes. But for now, get out there, get inspired, get aligned with the global goals, become a part of the 2030 agenda and use your business as a force for good in the world.